Happy 2020 from Inappropriate Conversations. This week, a talkback show. The last talkbacks that I released for past Inappropriate Conversations episodes included the number one downloaded uh, episode in the history of this particular podcast. And this week, I want to get to the number two ever downloaded show. Also going back to the first year, again, the older the show, the more opportunity for it to accumulate downloads over the years. Before I get there, though, uh, probably need to do a little bit of a framing for both this episode and the next one. The logo for Inappropriate Conversations, if you look at the website or if you see it in a podcatcher, includes the words religion, sex, politics, and drugs. And that's probably not the most accurate order in terms of the focus of the show. It's religion first probably is right. Politics would certainly be second. And I think I'm okay saying that sex would be next and drugs would be last on that list. But the show tends to focus a little bit more on things like nostalgia, popular culture. There's as much uh, rock and roll as there are sex and drugs on past inappropriate conversations shows. So when I do lean into it, it feels like it's worth calling out. This will be an explicit language show, primarily because of the content of the original episode. Now, the 14th Inappropriate Conversations was not the first one to get an explicit language tag, but it was probably the first one to well and truly earn it. And I'll have a little bit more introductory material before I dive into that past podcast. But I would say I'm not surprised that, um, that a show that has a focus on sex with a name like Sex Education the Protestant Way would generate a lot of interest. I'm still more surprised that the number one downloaded show in the history of this podcast is one focusing on a topic as comparatively arcane as prayer in schools. But in addition to sex, drugs, rock and roll, religion, politics, nostalgia, there are times when inappropriate conversations talks about sports. And because a talk pack show gives me the opportunity to deal with something in an extremely short subject way, I have a chance to talk about something that might not merit getting mentioned on an entire show, and doing so by way of introduction. I think I'm going to do that right now, because I did take some time off here at the end of December from the podcasts, both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations, which share a feed at www.inappropriateconversations.org, and the same RSS feed, which is why either one of these two podcasts, Walk the Earth, Inappropriate Conversations, can appear. In fact, we're going into a year where I'm expecting an uptick in the amount of content posted with almost sort of a three-way approach in terms of sometimes it's talkback, sometimes it's inappropriate conversations, and at other times there will still be some walk-the-earth content as well. But along the lines of sports, watching bowl games in particular, one of the issues that has been sort of annoying me for more than a year or so now is really this particular postseason bubbled up in my mind, and I feel like I need to say something about it. Because I believe that if I was an offensive player, and uh, my football experience is extremely limited, uh, I was never an offensive player, I was never a tackle football player. Even as a young enough kid to be interested in the sport, um, I was put in the flag football team on the defensive line, and kind of found myself in an interesting quandary where I wasn't good enough as a defensive lineman to, to really take seriously moving into tackle football, and if I had, I would have had to have gotten a lot bigger. I was too big in elementary school to be anything but a defensive or offensive lineman, but I was not big enough in junior high school to carry forward in any of that pursuit. But even you know, back at that time, being you know, a player who uh, understood the game reasonably well, I think I know enough about football to say that if I was an offensive player in one of these so-called skilled positions, quarterback, wide receiver, that... An opportunity would present itself every game or two where I would have within my power the ability to have a defensive player thrown out of the game. I wouldn't have to talk trash. I wouldn't have to start a fight. I wouldn't have to do anything to hope that the official would have to make a 50-50 call on who was at fault in an unsportsmanlike conduct situation. All I would have to do is recognize that a defensive player was approaching me with the intent to put a serious tackle onto me and strategically lower my head in the right direction at the right time. Because the rule for targeting in college football only really applies to defensive players. I've suspected this for a long time, and now I think we've seen enough evidence to support that claim. That if both players, the offensive player and the defensive player, are responsible 
for poor helmet technique, creating a head-to-head collision that actually puts both of them in the hospital. Only one of them is going to be disqualified and penalized 15 yards for unsporting play. The the offensive player is going to get away scot-free. And if the offensive player is just a little bit lucky, he might not injure himself to such a degree that he couldn't continue in the game, but he could weaken the defense by making them that defensive team at least one-eleventh less strong than they were when the game started by having one of the regular starters thrown out of the game. I'm calling this out for what I consider to be the sporting heresy that it is, because I've now begun to be a lot more public about calling for a new rule in college football that would take a serious look at the responsibility of both players to avoid helmet-to-helmet contact. And if an offensive player who's about to be tackled lowers his head into the tackle, that's every bit as inappropriate for the health and welfare of both players as it is if a defensive player puts in a forceful tackle leading with the crown of his helmet. Here's the problem, though. That will never happen. A quarterback who's about to get sacked by a player bearing down on him with intent to put as much pressure on that quarterback in the tackle as he possibly can is the quarterback's never going to get thrown out of the game, even if the quarterback is you know more than just 50% responsible for the fact that the contact was head-to-head. If, for example, this defensive lineman is trying to tackle the quarterback in that sort of baseball strike zone area where you're not going low and, and doing things that might injure somebody's knees or ankles, but you're also getting nowhere near that neck and head area. But if you're aiming at that trajectory and the quarterback simply lowers his head into you, you're going to get 15 yards and a disqualification for the balance of the game and perhaps some of the game after it for targeting. And the reason I'm calling it some sort of a legalism, some sort of a sporting heresy, is that if we really cared about protecting players, and if we really were teaching the right technique in terms of avoiding head injuries, it would apply on both sides of the ball. Now, I'm not trying to put the officials in the unenviable position of trying to decide which player was responsible for a helmet-to-helmet contact. I'm simply saying that if the offensive player, whether receiver, running back, quarterback, whomever, lowers their head into that kind of a tackle and forces the head-to-head action, then if you're going to disqualify the defensive player, you must also disqualify the offensive player. Both of them are guilty of poor technique. In that case, you get two disqualifications. You have offsetting penalties that don't affect the yardage on the playing field. Or if you wanted to be you know, pedantic about it, you could mark 15 yards off against the defense and then immediately mark 15 yards back against the offense and leave the football exactly where it was at the end of the tackle. I'm less interested about the yardage, though, and more interested about calling out the current college football rule structure for being less interested in protecting the health and well-being of players, being less interested in holding every player on the field and their coaching staffs accountable for good technique and safety first, and really only interested in the public relations of punishing defenders for hits that look bad. And to that end... I will, believe it or not, tie this back to the topic today of sex education. I will only make one New Year sort of claim. Uh, anybody who's listened to past inappropriate conversations around this time of year knows I'm not, a resol- I'm not a resolutions kind of guy. So I'm not making a resolution so much as I'm forecasting a prediction that's easy for me to make. And that's that the um, Lutheran pastor and author Nadia Boltzweber will be named a different drummer before the end of this year, and probably before the halfway point of this year. And I will talk about her in the next new Inappropriate Conversations, which will be the next thing released on this feed, if all goes well. But I'm also going to quote her here, from her 2019 book, Shameless, because one of the things she shares in the book about the nature of, for want of a better word, the true definition of heresy, applies in this college football situation. If, as I might claim, in a provocative way, that college football seems less interested in actually preventing head injuries where there's helmet-to-helmet contact or helmet-to-helmet risk being taken on both sides of the ball, the offense and the defense, and just more interested in the public relations of punishing big tackles, then that meets the genuine 19th century definition of heresy. Weber, in her book, which deals with, well, her subtitle is A Sexual Reformation, so she's dealing with the way the church has handled sexuality, sex education, and other sort of things. She makes the argument that the church has kind of failed us, 
over the years, over the centuries, in fact, in the area of sex education and sexual morality by being a lot more interested in the appearance of what Christ said than what Christ actually said, quoting her. If we look as deep as we can stomach, what we will find at the center is a heresy. The 19th century theologian Frederick Schleiermacher defines heresy as that which preserves the appearance of Christianity and yet contradicts its essence. And there you have the appearance of, con of Christianity, Bible verses and God talk, contradicting the essence, loving God and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. The heresy is this, with all the trappings of Christianity behind us, we who seek to justify or maintain our dominance over another group of people have historically used the Bible, Genesis in particular, to prove that domination is not actually an abuse of power at the expense of others, but indeed, it is part of God's plan. In a footnote, she says, Other systems of domination that have been asserted as God's plan by those who would benefit from them include slavery, segregation, and their modern-day counterpart, mass incarceration. So basically saying that a lot of times the Bible gets used by people to assert an inness versus outness domination of a majority group against a minority group or a perceived minority group, because I think probably um, male asserted dominance over women is not necessarily a true minority-majority kind of relationship there. And it applies to some degree here as well, in the sense that the interest is, you know, playing by the letter of the law, going by the rules as written, assuming that the rules themselves are actually being um, intelligently applied to begin with, or that there isn't some issue with the rules. In fact, in many ways, uh, my Christian um, philosophy is that Jesus, in many ways, came in the New Testament to point out deficiencies in the rules. You know, in New Testament stories where Jesus is saying, it's not wrong to heal on the Sabbath, because if you, the leaders of the church, and had your kid fall into a well, or even your donkey fall into a well on the Sabbath, you would certainly find a way to save that animal. So it's about the hypocrisy. And in this case, I've started the show by calling out a college football hypocrisy. But in the next Inappropriate Conversations show, I'm going to deal with what I consider to be a building block on this look back. Well, we're going to talk back to the experience I had of sex education when I was growing up, and how ironic it is that that was so much better than anything we see today. That the Protestant church that I grew up in was more complete, comprehensive, diligent, prayerful, careful, effectively broad in the sex education that I learned in like sixth grade than anything we see today in schools, churches, and homes combined. And it's, it's got issues that we might not come to recognize. In Boltz Weber's book, Shameless, she sort of outlines the fact that she spent a lot of her time asking three questions. And the answers to these questions she's gotten from people that she's interacted with in a pastoral capacity, people who've given her permission to share their stories, first name basis or assumed names, in her book, are telling. Her questions are this. Number one, growing up, what messages did you receive from the church about sex and the body? Number two, how did these messages affect you? And number three, how have you managed to, to navigate your life as an adult based on the answers to the previous questions? In other words, the church failed to teach you things. and Has that had com you know, consequences to your adult life, your adult sexual life? Or worse, did the church teach you things which were actually harmful, hold you to a standard that either wasn't truly biblical or didn't meet the standard of common sense? Weber asks those questions. I recommend her book last year, Shameless, as a matter of fact. It is well done. And to me, my answers to those questions were, ironically, shared nine and a half years ago on one of the very first Inappropriate Conversations episodes, talking about sex education, including things like contraception, including a little song about contraception, if I'm not mistaken. So just a couple quick reminders before we get going. This is a highly downloaded show from the past. Sound quality, a little bit shaky. Inappropriate Conversations as a podcast was a lot to do in the first year or so with my evolution of understanding just exactly how to even do this thing, how to record, how to edit, how to compress, all that sort of stuff. So 
it will make references, more likely than not, to the old way of getting to the website. The preferred way is actually inappropriateconversations.org or inappropriateconversations.com. I'm still on Podbean, but I don't know that I would try to access the website through the Podbean URL. And it might also have references or uh, breaks in topics using promos for shows that don't exist anymore. In fact, I think that's actually quite likely to be the case. One of the things I told myself when I started doing talkbacks is that these talkback shows would reprodu- reproduce the old episode, warts and all. I'm not looking to correct the past in any way, or necessarily even apologize for it. If I need to build upon, or even course correct, anything from Inappropriate Conversations 14 in this talkback, I'll do it when I record the next show. They have in common an unusual back-to-back focus on sex from an inappropriate conversation's perspective. Thanks. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about sex education, the Protestant way. Then, but not now. start a conversation about sex education by using a quote from one of Dennis Miller's rants. Condoms don't make babies, people do. We'll get back to Dennis Miller in just a minute. My theory here is that knowledge is power, and I want to share how I received education about the birds and the bees back when uh, I was just very young, and in really in the aftermath of the sexual revolution. Uh, Most of the big wave of changes in our society had come and gone by then, and the church had found an interesting way of dealing with it. It's not the same way the church chooses to deal with it today, by and large. My theory is this. It is very difficult to resist temptations that come from out of nowhere if you don't have the knowledge to know how to deal with them, if you don't know what you're getting, if you don't know what to expect. We'll talk about this later when it comes to the concepts of drugs— Drug use, drug abuse, resisting the temptation to use and abuse drugs, really comes down to the idea that if you know what it is you're saying no to, you're going to be much more effective. See, being prepared and understanding consequences are really crucial ways of making good choices when the other options you're being presented with are truly tempting. When I was growing up, all the way back to age 10, we're talking end of elementary school, beginning of junior high school, kind of right in between there, the approach my parents used and the approach the church that I went to used was to provide sex education. So I'm going to describe a little bit of that sex education. And while I do it, I want you to ask yourself whether or not that conforms with the notions that you hear from the church today. Let's set perhaps the Roman Catholic Church aside because they do their own thing. But if you think of evangelical Protestant Christians, how do you think they would handle the question of sex education? And I only have to give you one hint to give you a sense of where the other extreme here is. The other extreme is abstinence-only education, or what uh, First Lady Nancy Reagan once said, just say no. Okay, so what did sex education look like when I was growing up? It was a Friday night. I don't know whether it was 6 or 7 p.m., maybe somewhere in between. Call it 6.30. My, I, my parents brought me to the church where in our church fellowship hall, we had brought in uh, guest speakers along with facilitators from within our own congregation, to lead pretty much everybody in that 6th and 7th grade age group. So there was a lot of us. Not just the, you know, 20 kids from our church, but perhaps even another 10 from elsewhere in the community or from nearby churches who wanted to participate. And we started that night with a three-hour sort of, you know, a little bit of team building sort of stuff, getting to know each other. Uh, We paired off into what would become our small groups for discussion. We were given the book that we would be reading, not just that weekend, but from that point forward, because it was a book that was given to us. And I'd been given books before. I mean, my parents, I think, had a very strong attitude about the importance of sex education. But I was given books from the 1940s and 50s, you know, the books that they had, uh, which is ironic, because I'm going to talk in a minute about me handing this particular book from the mid 1970s down to my kids, and I'm sure they had the same response. But uh, the the original books that I'd been given by my parents about uh, dating and uh, dating and sexuality had a lot of really old and outdated language in it. For example, 
heavy petting. I don't think I ever really, uh, up until you know, well after sixth grade, grasped what heavy petting actually meant in, in the context of sex and dating. Because to me, the term petting didn't mean anything. You know, you have, an, you have a small animal like a cat or a dog. There's that kind of petting. Uh, it, it just didn't make sense to me. The language barrier was too big. And I still see some of that even now. For my generation, the term make out meant to kiss or perhaps to engage in what we might call mild, heavy petting. But for my parents' generation, the term make out meant uh, sexual intercourse. So uh, every now and then you'd hear, you'd hear a conversation where one of the older siblings would say, eh, it's no big deal. We were just making out. That's why I'm late. And, you know, one of my parents would fly off the handle because they wouldn't have the context for what the difference was in, in the language. So that first night, uh, like the three-hour portion of the two-day event of, of the sex education class in my church was kind of getting to know you, kind of laying the outline. And then the next morning, we spent pretty much all day, I want to say it was an 8 to 4, 8 to 3.30 at the, at the very least, covering topics, having discussions, uh, kind of doing some sharing, hearing, hearing information, seeing some maybe short videos or some slideshows, all of it, doing what I would consider to be I still consider it to be a non-indoctrinational dive into human sexuality. So, compare this to the just say no approach. How did we handle things? Well, first off, there was some just say no. I mean, uh, I believe it's actually factually true that the only way you can be 100% certain that you can prevent pregnancy is to not engage in any sexual activity whatsoever. Beyond that, you're bringing on some element of what we might call risk if the uh, harm or the danger you're trying to avoid is, is unwanted pregnancy. But we went much more than that. We hit every conceivable type of behavior uh, from you know, holding hands, kissing, uh, the response of certain people in society to public displays of affection. We hit um, manners, etiquette, but we also dove right into um, sexuality in all of its various forms. We talked about masturbation. We talked about oral sex. We talked about um, contraception, talked about homosexuality, talked about certain fetishes, didn't dive too deeply into that, but the concept was put up there, and the information was presented in a way that I found to be very helpful for many years to come. Now, as you may have guessed, if you haven't already seen, this episode is going to carry an explicit tag. And the reason this show is going to carry an explicit tag is two-part. First, I want to give myself permission to speak freely here. If, uh, if maybe a slang term is a better way of describing one of the concepts I want to deal with, then I'm going to have to go there. But the second thing is I did get some, uh, some commentary, some feedback from uh, a friend and listener called Anthony who said, Hey, you mentioned the author the other day, and uh, you talked about him you know, having some very uh, you know, puerile humor, some very immature, childish, but um, you know, X-rated humor. Um, it's just wrong for you to talk about it and not share some. Well, this seems the perfect context then to say, hey, we're going to talk a little bit about a lot of things, including contraception. And I've got a little, little song by the author about contraception. We'll be sharing that uh, before we get done today. But first, just to kind of diffuse some of the assumptions that people might make, because you've got a church, you've got a Protestant church, and a church that I would describe as at least being you know, largely evangelical in its approach, a church where if I visited today, I think I would find a lot of very politically conservative people worshiping, and they're people that I, I knew years and years and years ago. So how can it be that in our current society, the outline I've already provided for you would be unthinkable today? If I walked into a church with a stack full of this books called, uh, the book was called something like uh, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, or no, it was called Love and Sex in Plain Language, and I believe it is still in print. My copy I handed to my daughter, or my, my son and daughter, actually, but when I, got, when I handed it to my daughter a few years ago, it effectively disappeared. So even though both children, I think, had a little bit of time with that particular book, I'm not sure either one of them really got through it cover to cover, and it's nowhere to be seen. It's somewhere, you know, it's one of those things where it's probably somewhere in the house, and somewhere is a, is a mystery today. So I don't have it, and I didn't want to pick up a new copy. It just seems silly, especially if I wanted to refer back to what I experienced when I was 10 years old, and I don't have that edition available to me. I, I could buy the fourth or fifth edition, but I can't buy that first or second edition version. So I'm going to have to go from memory in terms of what the material was and how it was covered. I also will offer that some of the things that were covered in that uh, you know, two-day session, that two-day class, 
was beyond beyond the scope of the book. You know, the book covered things in, from one angle, and there were presentations that covered things from a different angle. And again, when you think about what our bias might be about Christian versions of sex education, especially since the Ronald Reagan era, you're going to be really surprised about how things went before the Ronald Reagan era. There were certain things communicated like, historically, homosexuality has been viewed by the American Psychological Association as being some sort of a mental illness or a disease or some sort of an aberrant behavior. And in this two-day session, what we were taught was that that point of view is being largely discredited by the latest research and that we don't have the answers exactly to say what homosexuality is or how it fits in with society, but that it is absolutely wrong to view it as some kind of a disease or to view it as some kind of a mental problem or, you know, anything of that sort, that the latest research suggests that we need to have a different point of view. And then they took it from that end to say, you know what? Again, you're dealing with people who are 10, 11, 12 years old. If you've got a little brother who's playing with dolls, if you've got a little sister who's playing with you know, trucks, army men, and cars, that's not a big deal. First off, it doesn't mean that they're homosexual at all. And second, even if it does, there's probably nothing you can do about it, and it is certainly not some sort of you know, problem that needs medical or psychological intervention or drugs to solve. That's a huge distance from the same message that you might receive in churches today. And obviously, I'll confess, it's colored my worldview. It's left an impression on me. But I'm also going to be quick to say I haven't seen any research that disagreed with the perspective that was taught in church at that time. There also was a notion that, you know, there are certain people who do engage in deviant behavior, and you've got to make a distinction between whether that behavior that's not, quote-unquote, normal or typical is problematic or not. So we were given, you know, a very healthy reminder, because by this age, we'd already been warned about pedophilia, pedophiles, what they are, what, what they do, how to avoid them, how to, how to recognize danger when you see it. But we also were told, hey, you know, there are also other kinds of, you know, strange and um, interesting or different sexual attitudes that happen out there doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. And I don't know that the word consensual was ever used, but the concept of whether an activity was consensual or not was, was put before us. And that was as deeply as we went into the area of fetish. For me, the place that left the biggest impression was actually not what you might think. Um, the two areas that I think I had the most questions about or I had the most interest in, one was masturbation and the other one was contraception. And by far, contraception occupied my thoughts for um, for the longest. And, and I really... Uh, left the biggest impression on me, I would say. Uh, sexual intercourse, I, you know, somewhere along the way in second or third grade, you, you hear enough naughty jokes, you figure out what that means. It wasn't really new information. And I'm not 100% sure that um, the slight dabbling into the concept of oral sex even registered with me. But I was very, I was very, I was curious, I guess is the way I would word it, because I wasn't sure I fully understood how masturbation worked from a gender perspective, because you figure out kind of how it works for a guy, even if you're you know in, in the middle part of elementary school. What I didn't understand was how there's a compensatory concept that would work for women. And as embarrassing as it might seem, as embarrassing as it might sound, in a you know small group setting where there's six or seven of you, and you know there's boys and girls in the mix, and there's adults in the mix, typically not your parents. I think we split up better than that. Yeah, I was stuck with the, I had a question. And the bottom line is we were told, hey, we're getting together, we're spending these two days, we're doing something that is you know, very unusual for the church, but we're doing it because we want to make sure that you kids have the answers to your questions. Okay, I had a question, you know, how in the world does a girl jack off? I don't get it. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't work for me. I've since figured that out. But at the time, it was a legitimate question. And answering those questions, I think, is extremely helpful because the dominant mentality anyway, at least in my neighborhood, in my community at the time, what my world would have been in terms of how big it was, was that if you don't answer these questions in the right environment, if parents don't provide the answers, if the church doesn't provide the answers, if the school doesn't at least help play its part, then the kids are going to find the answers with each other, and that might lead to some very bad, very unwanted consequences. The, uh, the talk was, you know, are you going to learn it in the schools or are you going to learn it in the streets? And my church, then as now, not necessarily a big fan of the school taking on the task of providing this sort of sexual education because the church may have been concerned that it wouldn't have had um, necessarily a good enough religious and moral foundation to it. But my church really uh, 
really understood, even back then, and I guess it's a blessing to me that we did go to that church back then, kind of got the notion, and it's a very Christian notion, that if you are unhappy with the darkness that is facing you, you have two choices. You can curse the darkness, or you can or you can bring in the light. And for whatever reason, a lot of modern kind of Christian thinkers, neoconservative Christian thinkers, have really taken on the path of cursing the darkness. But there are some out there, like Michael Medved, like Hank Hanegraaff, um, who have joined what I would consider the call of my parents decades ago, say it's a much better answer to bring in the light. So you can say, hey, I don't want the schools teaching this. We'll make it to where it's irrelevant. Make it to where the schools don't have to. We're dealing with an era in American history where lots of people went to church. The number of kids who were actively involved in a youth group far outnumbered the number of kids who didn't go to church at all. So you had this sort of, for want of a better word, captive audience. And um, my congregation said, hey, if we take on the obligation of providing the right kind of sex education, and by right kind, I mean comprehensive, open, honest, not abstinence only, not even abstinence plus, but abstinence is a piece of the larger puzzle, then the schools won't get involved, or the schools won't feel they have to get involved, and we won't put the burden solely on parents who are either oftentimes either embarrassed or ill-equipped. Instead, we'll bring a group of parents together who can compensate for each other in areas where maybe the parent himself has a hang-up that would stop him from being able to answer his own children's questions. But uh, the parent next to him would maybe not have that same hang-up, would be able to speak from experience or speak from their own education to where what they've been taught can then be passed on to the next generation. So that was kind of the idea. So here I am, 10-year-old kid, uh, asking questions about how women do it uh, from a masturbation perspective. And typical of me, truly being the icebreaker. Because at that point, most people are going to say, hey, if he can ask that question, then I can ask anything. I can't speak for all the other groups, whether their discussions were as robust and interesting. But the small group that I was in, we talked to each other and we really got a lot out of it. So why did contraception leave such a big impression on me? Well, first off, it really wasn't in those books that I'd been given from the 1940s and 50s. It wasn't a topic in those books. So I had not seen a lot of information in print so far. The other reason, though, was I think that it provided for me an interesting perspective. And this is where I want to concentrate on, because I think it's an area where the abstinence-only approach really misses the boat. And I want to start by going back to the Dennis Miller quote, condoms don't make babies, people do. And we'll jump into it from there. So Dennis Miller takes the National Rifle Association slogan, guns don't kill, people do, and, you know, bends it to his own will. A serious streak cuts through this uh, twist on the slogan as he compares the popular approach to guns with our inability to form a consensus about how to handle teenage pregnancy. Many NRA members encourage parents to teach children how and when to use guns at a young age. You want to do that before the teenage years when communication frays and the stakes and the risks go up. Politically conservative NRA members would no doubt be outraged if the same approach were used about the birds and the bees. That if Junior sees a gun and learns how it works, he'll almost certainly kill someone. Let's think about that for a second and tell me if you think I'm wrong. If your attitude is that if the school gives you a condom and says, hey, I don't want you using it, but if you, if you put yourself in that dangerous situation, here you go. Most people who are politically conservative, most people have that National Rifle Association mentality, you know, God, guns, so forth seem to approach the issue from the perspective of if you give that 16, 17-year-old boy a condom, he is going to go out there and use it. We'll compare that to the notion of guns. I'm going to restate my claim. Does the NRA truly believe that if Junior sees a gun and finds out how it works, he's almost certainly going to go shoot someone? Yeah, well, maybe they are. Maybe they're being honest. If you give a kid a gun, show him how it works, he's definitely going to go to the range and practice. So maybe they're being more honest than I, I give them credit for. I don't know. Here's the problem I've got. I don't think that all-inclusive sex education causes this kind of a spree. Because the discussions about contraception and disease clearly emphasize the consequences. I didn't even mention disease. We probably spent a whole hour on sexually transmitted diseases. What is syphilis? What is gonorrhea? What is, what's crabs? You know, all that sort of stuff. And I'm sure probably the adults in the group thought, hey... If we really go into detail about STDs, that'll be a deterrent. That, that'll play into the abstinence side of the mix that we're trying to provide here. It was a pretty good claim against engaging in, in prostitution, involving yourself in those activities, because the STD section of this, um, of this training material, this classroom material, was pretty impressive. But it was the contraceptive part that worked with me. 
And here's why. When society debates about whether, when, and how to answer questions that children ask at even younger ages, sex-related questions, we first should address another question to the adults. Do children learn right from wrong in only one way? Is because I said so a foolproof method of keeping our children away from dangerous behavior? I don't think so. Some children do learn by following commands, and abstinence-only education is all those kids will ever need to hear. Others, though, will only learn if adults show them the boundaries and establish the consequences for crossing those boundaries. One parent may tell her three-year-old, do not play in the mud. Another may tell his, if you play in the mud, I'm going to put you in the bathtub instead of the swimming pool and you won't be allowed to play outside for the rest of the day. I'm not saying that one of those parents is right and the other one is wrong. No, I'm only saying that if adults don't stop arguing about whether to just say no or whether to establish boundaries and consequences, then they, the parents, must share the blame with the child for the muddy damage that's being done to the carpets and the furniture. It's easy to get people on both, you know, the extreme right, extreme left, what have you, wings of our country, to point to issues like premarital sex, unwanted pregnancy, abortion, all those sort of things, and get uptight about it. When are we going to get them to stop arguing and do something about it? Well, way back when, my church did do something about it. Among other things, they gave me a book. And the book said, hey, here are the statistics on the effectiveness of contraception. Now, again, if you approach this from one perspective, from the abstinence-only perspective, you're going to have this idea in your head that, oh, no. If you tell this person how a condom works, if you tell this girl how a diaphragm works, if you wander through uh, what the birth control pill is and how it works, then they're just going to start going crazy. They're gonna, we got drunk monkeys everywhere, teenagers gone wild. And you know what? If you look at the statistics... It's not like they don't have a case to make, but I can only tell you that from my personal experience, I had the opposite effect because from my mind, I was looking at this material and it led me to say, hang on a second. If I'm going to be responsible, not just to myself and my family, but also to the girl and her family, I got to do this stuff. And even if I do this stuff right, its effectiveness is not guaranteed. Well, it made me think, hang on a second. I'm going to be pretty cautious. Let me uh, share something a little bit more personal than even the things that I've done so far. In the first few years of our marriage, we decided that we were going to delay having kids. My work situation was a little bit unstable. Um, we had a year of school for my wife to complete. And we just said, hey, let's be very careful. Let's, let's use contraception wisely. Let's not have kids. And for us, using contraception wisely meant two methods. Always at least two methods. Now... There are ways of mixing two methods that is irresponsible, unnecessary, potentially dangerous. So I'm not saying use a condom and a diaphragm at the same time. Do not get me wrong here. What I am saying is one of the things that I learned all those years ago from the contraception part of that sex education class was that any one method has very suspect reliability. Let's perhaps start with the most obviously unreliable, two of them really, the rhythm method and the withdrawal method. Uh, the withdrawal method, for anyone who knows anything about male sexuality in particular, a complete idiotic waste of time and a completely you know, ignorant idea in terms of, well, this is going to work for me. You know, it, it betrays a complete ignorance about the entire concept of pre-cum. And it goes all the way to the extreme of kind of get, getting back to where we were when we talked about um, the sexual revolution. And there being so many people, uh, even as recently as the last 20, 30 years, who believe that the semen is the sperm and that those two things are connected with each other. Uh, not necessarily the case. You can have sperm leave your body before you actually hit what we would call the moment of ejaculation. So you have that issue there where the withdrawal method, foolish, uh, just crazy to put. For first, you're putting a lot of power on a person who's not likely to make the best decision in, the, in those circumstances. And the other one is the rhythm method. Because essentially the rhythm method is, let's guess when the woman's ovulating. And if we've guessed right, then the odds are um, she's probably not going to get pregnant anyway. That doesn't include things that are you know, unpredictable in the menstrual cycle. It doesn't include things that we can't guarantee about where eggs are in the fallopian tubes, from the distance between the ovary and the fallopian tubes at any given time. It takes on a huge amount of risk. And I would personally, I can't say this strongly enough, putting those two unreliable methods together is not acceptable. It's not good enough. It does not manage consequences even remotely well. You've got to do better than that. 
what we did typically was some combination of either uh, condom, rhythm, pill, and obviously once you get the pill in there, you've got a completely different set of statistics in terms of your likelihood of success. But relying on combinations like rhythm method and withdrawal, completely irresponsible. Uh, If you put together a condom or diaphragm with the pill, you put together those two things with withdrawal, then I think you've got yourself a great chance of success in terms of preventing unwanted pregnancy. And I actually can make the claim that I've never had an unwanted pregnancy in my life. Uh, Each occasion was entirely um, desired even if perhaps the particular time and circumstances could have been unexpected. We are, after all, human beings, and you never really, you really can't pick the date and the time of things like conception. But one of the the things that really struck me about the book, and it's part of the reason I'm kind of sad that I don't still have it, is I'm wondering if the statistics that we saw in that book in the contraception chapter are still true today, that basically your odds of, of getting a girl pregnant while using the uh, technology and birth control pills at the time was about 1 in 200. Not bad odds. IUD, the intrauterine device, um, close to as good, maybe 1 in 150, 1 in 100, less than a 1% chance. Although that uh, that method, I think, was always fairly intimidating, and it, it would probably please me if we've advanced technologically beyond that approach today. Not being a woman and not being married to a woman who's used that approach I don't know too much about where the stats are there. I do know this, though. When you look at things like diaphragm and condom, what you find is that the failure rate is one in every 30 or even less than one in every 30. And so when you're saying, well, I'm I'm using safe sex from a pregnancy prevention perspective, and my method is to use a condom, and that's it, um, I don't think that's good enough. I think you probably need to be mixing condom in with something else, whether that be some sort of a, of a drug or chemical-related birth control, or at the very least withdrawal or an understanding of what the rhythm, the rhythm cycle is. It just doesn't make sense to rely on something that's going to fail that often. Now, don't get me wrong. We're talking about a 3 to 6% failure rate. But the thing I've never really known for sure is whether the statistics that I was looking at in that book or whether the statistics that we measure today are always measured during ovulation. How is it possible for us to get a good reading on the effectiveness of condoms in preventing pregnancy if there's always another factor there? And what I'm referring to, of course, is the unintended impact of the rhythm method. If we're measuring the effectiveness of the condom, we must then assume that the failure of the condom will also immediately lead to the failure of any other compensatory method. So condom plus withdrawal is not a statistic that I'm interested in looking at. I'm interested in putting those statistics together and really increasing the odds of preventing unwanted pregnancy. So I always worry a little bit. When I see statistics related to the effectiveness of diaphragm, the effectiveness of sponge, the effectiveness of condoms, that I wonder if those numbers aren't impacted by, by the potential that other factors are also in play preventing pregnancy, including, you know, subtle things like the the position of the two partners, you know, are you are you in a swimming pool at the time versus in a bed? Now, that's not to imply that being underwater gives you any sort of additional protection. It's just an environmental factor that would have to be considered. The bottom line in all this is, these thoughts are in my head. I get out of this course at age 10. I'm not in a position to get anybody pregnant just yet anyway, more likely than not. But even a decade or so later, when I am interacting with people and the decisions are out there in terms of saying, well, when do we want to do this? When do we want to do that? How do we want to handle it? Even after marriage, the decision became, hey, if we're serious about when we want to have kids, if we're serious about planning that from a family planning perspective, that chapter left an impression that stuck with me because I was still thinking about contraception and still thinking about contraception all those years later. So the question's out there from a sex education perspective. In fact, I think it's even perhaps in the title of this episode. When I talk about how sex education was handled in a Protestant Christian church then, versus how sex education would be handled now, here's the stark, harsh fact. Odds are that there is 0% chance that the sex education I received as a kid would be made available to a, to a kid of the same age in any of the Christian churches today. That that idea has somehow been rejected without actually being rejected. No one complained about it. No one challenged it. No one's produced any evidence to show that it was a failure. As a church, we just walked away from it. Did we secede the education process to our schools? Did we decide that we didn't want the schools doing it and we didn't want to be hypocrites, so we didn't want to do it either? I'm not sure what happened, but I'm sure that we're worse off because of it. Because for every kid that you give a condom to, 
And like the kid with a gun who's going to go to the range and fire a few off, there's going to be other kids, kids like me, kids like my wife, who hear those statistics, who understand the consequences, who have been given not just the, the um, information that could lead you to being sexually active, but the responsibilities and understanding of the consequences, too, that those two things paired together is how you get responsible behavior. It goes back to that idea that I spoke of earlier, quoting uh, author Oz Ganes, bringing together freedom for and freedom from. So if you give a kid contraception and the kid goes out and uses it, he may be acting from a freedom from consequences perspective, that he, he can now have sex with less worry about getting somebody pregnant unintentionally. But I took that same information and used a freedom for approach to it and said, okay, now I've got not only the freedom from the consequences, but I've got the understanding and the intelligence and the logic that tells me what I've got to do when the time is right and not to play recklessly with this. It's a serious stuff. Sexuality, um, in some cases, have led people into um, managing certain fetishes and predilections that society would reject. It also has sexually transmitted diseases attached to it if you're, if you're reckless and careless and, in, and engage in sex worker trades and things of that nature. And even in the best occasion, contraception is out there. So here in a minute, I want to bring out the author on the topic of contraception and actually perhaps sing a little song called Contraception, That's the Game We Play. But before I do that, I want to take a quick promotional break. And I want to do it with an observation. A couple of weeks ago, I had an explicit tag on an episode that had really no explicit material on it whatsoever. The problem was that I was going to quote a song, and the song was called Chicken Shit Conformist. And the word shit is one of the words that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided should not be public airwaves material. We've picked uh, seven to ten words and decided those are dangerous for people to hear, and it's one of them. So you have to put an explicit tag on it. If they just named the song Chicken Feces Conformist, that would have been fine. I wouldn't have had to worry about it. But here's the funny thing about an explicit tag. It's kind of an in for a dime, in for a dollar idea. Once you put the tag on there and you say, okay, now I'm wearing the scarlet letter either way I go. What's to harm me from using a lot of explicit language? What's to stop me from using explicit language in a way that's completely inappropriate and totally off topic? Well, absolutely nothing. I've already got the tag on there. So when you're dealing with modern poetry and modern song lyrics, you're going to get a lot of people who really give themselves permission to speak freely. And um, one of the shows that I'd like to promote right now is a show called Fatal Interview. As you can tell from the promo, Tony Pucci gives himself permission to speak freely. Yes, uh, hi, Tony, it's the banana here. I, um, just wanted to send you a message to say, uh, you fucking suck, and you're a douchebag, and, uh, only lamos write poetry. You need to grow some balls, man, and stop being a little emo bitch. And all you fucking people who are listening to Fatal Interview... You fucking suck too. Fatal Interview is Tony Pucci's personal podcast. Please check it out at fatalinterview.com. Me, 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 me. All right, here we go. Sung to the tune of Alouette, a French folk song. And at some point I'll talk more about French folk songs. Uh, I have no doubt that I've picked this melody because I actually do love the, uh, the uh, comptines. But here we go. Contraception. And it's a sing-along, so if you catch on to the chorus, uh, feel free to join in from wherever you may be standing or sitting. Contraception, that's the game we play. Contraception, that's the game we play. First you take a rubber sock, then you put it on your cock. Pumper some, leaves no cum. Oh, contraception, that's the game we play. Contraception, that's the game we play. Make her take the little pills, ejaculate until she fills, she'll have no embryo. Oh, contraception, that's the game we play. Contraception, that's the game we play. If she'll get an IUD, screw her freely, then you'll see. It forbids, have no kids. Oh, contraception, that's the game we play. Contraception, that's the game we play. This is safer, I would say, but you don't go all the way. Eat her meat, then she'll beat. Oh, contraception, that's the game we play. Contraception, that's the game we play. That's just a hint of what the author is capable of. Hopefully it, it either makes uh, Anthony happy 
or it confirms my original thought that perhaps we shouldn't be singing any of the author's songs anytime soon. So one of the underlying questions we've been facing today is whether or not we're going to leave the task of conveying important information about sex and sexuality to the schools, to the streets, uh, trust that it gets taken care of at home, or bring it back into the churches. For those people who actually have objections to the schools leading it, and their objections are religiously based, then the churches should take over. At least do their part, I would say. Because unfortunately, it seems to me that when you hear most of the religious conservative talk about protesting sex education in schools and being insistent upon, upon abstinence only as an approach to programs, what those parents who feel that way are saying is, I'm not going to teach my kid because I think it's wrong. I don't want the schools teaching my kid because I think it's wrong. It's better for them to learn it on the street, on the third, fourth, and fifth date, from whoever, you know, relying upon the morals of whoever my kid happens to be dating at the time. And to me, that's profoundly irresponsible. Our different drummer this week would agree with me. His name is Dr. Alex Comfort. Dr. Comfort wrote what still may be the seminal text for everyday people on the topic of sex. The joy of sex, and I personally would include more joy of sex, could be viewed as the driver of the sexual revolution in a really negative way. But I don't think so. I don't think that's accurate at all. Again, knowledge is power. These books created dialogue as much as anything else. Talk about different things in sexual practice. It was the rest of the fetish chapter from that book that I was shown when I was 10 years old that also you know, went more deeply and more credibly into the interpersonal relationships, the impact of things that you do on your marital relationship or, or on your... Um, your casual relationships, because after all, this was this was the 70s. So the books create a dialogue, and in that regard, despite Dr. Comfort's own misgivings, they're probably among the greatest results, the greatest remaining fruits of the sexual revolution. I mentioned Dr. Comfort having misgivings. What does that mean? Who is Alex Comfort? Alex Comfort was a doctor. He's a physician, born in England, doing much of his life's work in London, he was also a uh, professional gerontologist, but an anarchist, a conscientious objector, somebody who was a pacifist with a strong anti-nuclear perspective. He had that same sense that poet William Carlos Williams expressed in his poem, The Orchestra. Say to them, man has survived hitherto because he was too ignorant to know how to realize his wishes. Now that he can realize them, he must either change them or perish. Like Williams... Alex Comfort had a sense that our nuclear ambitions had brought us to the point where we were a single disagreement between nations away from planet-wide annihilation. So here's this man who's really a very serious thinker and very passionate about being opposed to nuclear weaponry, opposed to nuclear power to a certain degree, uh, definitely anti-war, using his skills and his ability as, as a medical practitioner to speak in terms of what's best for humanity, what's best for the human body, if nothing else. And yet, perhaps to his disappointment in later years, he is best known as being the author of a couple of sex manuals. Okay, I understand that. But it would be wrong for me to skip out on the idea of citing Alex Comfort here, because his contributions to this topic are unmistakable. Frankly, I'm not sure that I didn't encounter his books at too young of an age. Um, that's something that I may go into some more detail about. We will see. There's a difference between giving a 10-year-old a book that is written for a, a junior high, high school kind of an audience and maybe 10, year old, 10 years old is the youngest. I was probably the youngest person in that class that I took at church. Most of the others were 11 or 12 years old. There's a difference between that and a book that's described by its publisher as a gourmet guide to lovemaking. Um, you know, at this point, you're not even old enough to cook yet. What are you reading gourmet textbooks for? But... Again, it, broadening horizons, opening up ideas. People have, I think, perhaps over the years confused The Joy of Sex with being a book that was written primarily for prurient reasons. The Joy of Sex does not read like, a, uh, like, a, like some of the letters columns in some of the adult men's magazines. It's not without you know, some prurient material, because clearly you're talking uh, nuts and bolts, practicality, um, how to do this, what happens if you don't, consequences. But you're also talking about sex. But the difference is that instead of using actual photography 
actual pictures of real people. Most of the uh, sketches and drawings that you know illustrate the book were just exactly that. They were hand-drawn. They were sketches. And the people that were in there were not designed to look like they were porn stars or anything like that. The effort was made to make this look very like very normal people, like typical, average sorts of people. Because the focus was not on the kind of visual cues that men respond to, and it was not on uh, a big list of do's and don'ts either. It was literally a how-to. Um, not quite a cookbook, but in some ways, not unlike a cookbook. So I remember seeing the Joy of Sex book, or books, at some point in time, still probably junior high, early high school, you know, again, maybe younger than, younger than I was going to be able to leverage the material, because it was all written from the perspective of you being in some kind of, more likely than not, being in some kind of committed relationship, where it makes sense to explore the full depth of, of what it means to have wet clothing on, what it means to practice different, different forms of delayed satisfaction and denial, uh, role-playing, all that other sort of stuff. It's filled with all those ideas. And again, a lot of those ideas are not going to be able to be leveraged for, you know, in my case, for years. But again, certain things from the material that I read there did stick with me. And once again, you've got an author who's writing from the perspective of saying, hey, you know what? If you have a wet dream about something, that doesn't mean that the object of the dream, that the subject matter in the dream is some sort of an indication of who it is you really are subconsciously and inside. Um, he demystified a lot of that stuff. Uh, on the other hand, I, there's a section in one of the books in particular on the concept that he referred to as slow masturbation that has stuck with me in my mind and percolated around for all of these years and, and led me to draw a few conclusions that I'm not ready to share in this program. But, you know, at some point when we hit the topic of sex again and we hit uh, sex from the perspective of an individual sexual act, uh, there's a pretty good chance that it might mix in some of the concepts from there. Because, among other things, it's the notion that the journey is every bit as important as the destination. And this is definitely true if you're a man. For, for many men, the destination demarks a point where you're going to have to disembark and get off the train for a little while. You know, for women, it's not quite so cut and dried. But Alex Comfort brought a lot of those ideas in, did it from a medical doctor perspective. So the information that's being conveyed has uh, some scientific credibility to it. And although he was willing to talk about do's and don'ts in terms of what's best for the human body, what's good for the human body, what's bad for the human body, and how far into the bad for the body can you go before you're going to begin to have serious problems. He wasn't putting up a moral list in terms of saying, this is the bad stuff, this is the good stuff. He was literally taking a scientific approach to it and doing so, I think, probably with the assumption that from a moral perspective, his readers could be, or perhaps should be, people who'd already addressed those issues. If you're reading books like The Joy of Sex and More Joy of Sex, and you're reading them as a married couple, as a married partnership, most of the moral questions that could be asked have already been answered. If you eliminate things like bringing other people into your relationship, if you say, no, this is, a, this is the two of us and we're together, there's almost nothing in those books that falls within the realm of things that are offered up as ideas that should be eliminated. I think you would eliminate, I think... From a Christian perspective, you'd eliminate the idea of additional partners. You'd toss out the orgy concept right up front. But anything else that's between one man and one woman, Alex Comfort was right. Even if he rejected that that was the only thing he was known for, if he rejected that being the central focus of his, of his life's work, he was still right in saying that sex is not bad, that Christianity doesn't teach that sex is bad, and that a great deal of joy can be had if two people really commit to each other and make that portion of their life something that is that is worth finding joy in. So, Dr. Alex Comfort, writer of a couple of controversial books even at the time, our different drummer, especially when we're talking about the topic of sex education. Masters of None. Hey, it's Jay from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at mastersofnoneshow.com. Is there such a thing as sex education for adults? I certainly think so. And I believe Alex Comfort would have agreed with me. Okay, so I promised a deeper dive into sexuality at some point, and I think I've probably accomplished that about as fully as I need to for now. If you have some comment to make about this particular inappropriate conversation, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com, and the website is inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. 
no www's there. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.